Lord, we just come before you. We ask that you bless this time as we look at your word, that your Holy Spirit will lead and guide us as we examine it, and that we will see what you'd have us to see from this. And we just thank you in your son's precious name. Amen. Amen. Psalm 89. We'll read the whole thing, then we'll come back to verse 15. I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. With my mouth will I make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I have said, mercy shall be built for up forever. O faithfulness, shall, your faithfulness shall, be, shall you establish in the very heavens. I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn unto David, my servant, your seed will I establish forever and build up your throne for all generations. Selah. And the heavens shall praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness also in the congregation of the saints. For who in the heaven can be compared unto the Lord? Who among the sons of the mighty can be likened unto the Lord? God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be had in reverence for of all them that are about him. O Lord God of hosts, who is a strong Lord like unto you? Or like your faithfulness around about you? You rule the raging of the sea. When the waves therein raise, you still them. You have broken Rahab in pieces. As one that is slain, you have scattered your enemies with a, your strong arm. The heavens are yours, and the earth is also yours. As the world and the fullness thereof, you have founded them. The north and the south that you have created, Tabor and Hermon you have, shall rejoice in your name. You have a mighty arm, strong is your hand, and high is your right hand. Justice and judgment are your habitation of your throne. Mercy and truth shall go before your face. Blessed is the people that know the joyful sound. They shall walk, O Lord, in the light of your countenance. In your name shall they receive, rejoice all the day, and in your righteousness shall they be exalted. For you are the glory of their strength, and your favor... And in your favor our horn shall be exalted. For the Lord is our defense, and the Holy One of Israel is our King. Then you spoke in vision unto the Holy One, saying, I have laid help upon one that is mighty. I have exalted one, one chosen of the people. I have found David my servant. With my holy oil have I anointed him. With whom my hand shall be established, mine arm also shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not exact upon him, nor is the son of wickedness afflict him. I will beat down his foes before his face and plague them that hate him. But my faithfulness and my mercy shall be with him, and in my name shall his horn be exalted. I will set his hand also in the sea, and his right hand in the rivers. He shall cry unto me, You are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. Also I will make him in my firstborn higher than the kings of the earth. My mercy will I give him forever, and my covenant shall stand fast with him. His seed also will I make to endure forever in his throne as the days of heaven. If his children forsake my law and walk not in my right judgments, if they break my statutes and keep not my commandments, then will I visit their transgressions with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. Nevertheless, my loving kindness will I not utterly take away from him, nor suffer any fool faithfulness to fail. My covenant will I not break nor alter the thing that is gone from my lips. Once I have sworn by my holiness that I will not lie unto David. His seed shall endure forever in his throne as the sun before me. His seed shall endure forever in his throne and it shall be established forever as the moon as a faithful witness in heaven. Selah. But he has cast off the abhorred and has been wroth in, his ang in, your, in your anointed. You have made void the covenant of your servant. You have profaned his crown by casting it to the ground. You have broken down all his hedges, and you have brought his strongholds to ruin. All that pass by spoil him, and his reproach to his neighbors. You have set up the right hand of his adversaries. You have made his enemies to rejoice. You have also turned the edge of his sword, and have not made him to stand in battle. You have made his glory to cease, and cast his throne down on to the ground. The days of his youth have you shortened. You have covered him with the shame, Selah. How long, Lord, will you hide yourself forever? Shall your wrath burn like fire? Remember now how short my time is. Therefore have you made all men in vain. What man is it that lives and has not seen death? Shall he deliver his soul from the hand of the grave? Selah. Lord, where are your former loving kindness, which you swear unto David in your truth? 
Remember, Lord, the reproach of your servants. How do I bear in my bosom the reproach of all the mighty people? Wherewith your enemies have reproached. O Lord, wherewith have they reproached the footsteps of your anointed? Blessed be the Lord forevermore. Amen and amen. All right, we're going to come back to verse 15. Blessed is the people that know the joyful sound. They shall walk, O Lord, in the light of your covenants. The joyful sound of worship, the joyful sound of his blessing, and they walk in it. The, in number six, we see, we see what the priests were to say to the people every time they gathered together. I'm going to get there. Numbers chapter 6, starting at verse 22. And the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, Speak unto Aaron and unto his son, saying, On this wise shall you bless the children of Israel, saying unto them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and his graciousness unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And they shall put my name upon the children of Israel, and I will bless them. That was what the priests were to say to each, of, each time they came in. The Lord bless you and his face shine upon you. Here, Ethan is playing on that. He goes, blessed are those whose face is the light of God is shining on. And you know what that means. It means when you look at somebody and your face lights up, you're, you're pleased to see them. And we know what that looks has on people. There's somebody in our life that when they see us, they light up. We also know some people probably that when, we, when they see us, their fate dims down and they're like, oh no, not you. <laughs> then they turn around and walk the other way. But this is yeah, what... I'm not going to let you in. <laughs> this is God's attitude towards us. When he sees us, his children, his face lights up. He doesn't say, oh my, you've made so many mistakes, I don't want to be around you, you're... You were so bad the last couple you know, weeks, months, years, decades. I don't want to be around you. His face shines upon us and he brings us into his pleasant blessing. And we are blessed. We are happy because of hearing his word and living in that light. And it says, For they are the glory of their strength and in your favor our horn is exalted. So he says, the, oh, verse 16. Your name shall be rejoiced all day long, and in righteousness shall they be exalted, for you are the glory of their strength, and in your favor our horn is exalted. Because God rejoices in us. This is something we need to really understand. God rejoices in his children. This is something that we need to see, because so many people have this idea that God is not interested in seeing them. Oh, God is just, you know, he's waiting to beat me up. I can't go into his presence because all he wants to do is chew me out. He wants to make me feel bad. And that is not the God we serve. We serve a God who loves us so great that he rejoices. And it says, in your righteousness shall they be exalted. Even David in his day, or Ethan in their, his day, understood that God is the one that raises up people in righteousness. We can try all we want to obey God's laws in our own strength, but it is God's righteousness that will be exalted. We accept Jesus Christ and we are hidden in him. On Sunday morning last week, we talked about the armor of God, how God puts on his armor, which is Jesus Christ, and God sees us as righteous. And this is important for us. It's his righteousness. It says, for you are the glory of their strength, and you, and in your favor, our horn is established. And horn is a power or authority, also referring to governments. Okay, this is what we see. We talked about it in the book of Revelation when it talked about the dragon with the ten horns and the beast with the ten horns, and one got cut off and it grew three others in its place. The horn is countries or powers or authority. And here he says, our power and authority comes from you. Without God, we have nothing. Period. No power, no authority, no righteousness, no nothing, because it's all God. And we need to really fully understand that. And then verse 18, for God is our defense. 
The Holy One of Israel is our King. And this has been the pattern all through Psalms. God is our defense. We hide in him. We run into him. And we hide in him. And he defends us. And he is the one that wants us to do this. And he's not looking to say, oh, you're so weak, you have to run into me. That's not God. He's saying, come on in. I am your strength. I am your protector because I know you don't have the power to fight the spiritual battles that are coming your way. Who are we battling with? All the principalities and demons of this world. You know, we, we stand no chance when it comes to it if we want, really want to be, uh, be truthful about it. When David stood before Goliath in his own strength, there was no chance for David to take on Goliath. Here's a short little boy that's barely, barely 10, 12, 13, maybe 14 years old against a nine and a half foot giant who's been battling all his life. And David has no armor, no sword. He's got a, he's got a sling against ar an armored giant. In the flesh, he had no chance of winning that battle. And yet his confidence was that God is going to deliver this person who's cursing God, and he's going to deliver him into my hand mm -hmm. so that God's people will have victory. We have this all the time. God is saying, hide in me and you will get the victory because I want to give you victories. But it starts with surrender to him. And there's a lot of understanding people have to have about that story. And when Joshua fought in Jericho and just this battle plan was to walk around Jericho, it was... You know, it had to have been like insanity to the, to the people and to the people that were in the city. Well, here's those crazy Jews. They're walking around our city again. Yeah, not saying a word. Yeah. Hey, they're doing it again on day seven. Wow, they're really crazy today. They're going around more than once. And then their city fall, the walls fall. God's plans always seem a little silly to, to us when we think about it because it makes no sense in the flesh. But that is why it's his plan. He wants to get the glory. He wants to show us that he is the one that's going to be victorious. Because if we could do it in our own flesh, then we would take credit for it. And God says, I'm going to give you a job that's so big that only I can do it. And he gives us the pleasure of being able to help him with that activity. And here we're seeing this. Verse 19. Then you spoke, spoke in a in a vision unto your holy one and said, I have laid help upon one that is mighty. I have exalted one chosen out of the people. I have found David my servant and my holy oil have I anointed him in whom my hand shall establish, mine arm also shall strengthen him. Hey, remember, we had Saul was the king of Israel and he disobeyed God. He was told to go and destroy the entire Amalekite nation and he came back with a bunch of the animals and he came back with the king and because we have Amalekites later on in the Bible he left some of the Amalekites alive besides the king okay and he comes back and he was supposed to have waited for Saul to give the blessing and make the sacrifice so he'd also given the sacrifice because he wanted to he was thinking Saul was waiting too long quite often we will go out and do something because we're tired of waiting for God and we make a mess of things. And we need to learn the patience, be with, in step with God. God has plenty of time and he will tell us what time we have and he will work in the perfect time. And too often we jump the gun. Sometimes we do what it is he's wanting us to do, but we do it before he says to go and we end up getting defeated. In Saul's case, he came back a winner, but Samuel said, what have you done? He goes, well, I kept these few sheep so we can offer, and that's when he said, well, God, God expects obedience, not sacrifice. And then he goes, well, and, you know, and then he says, I've killed all the people, and he goes, well, what about this king? And he goes, well, I, you know, I just wanted to, you know, and Samuel ended up killing the king and saying, this day is the kingdom taken from you, Saul. Saul lost the kingdom because of his disobedience to God. And then God sent Samuel out to find a new king. Obedience is a big part of it because that's what God wants. He wants obedience. But he wants it 
in his terms. He wants it to be obedient to him. And Saul and Samuel went out to find a new king, and, and God sent him to the house of Jesse. Samuel told Jesse to call all of his sons so that he could look them over. And Jesse forgot all about David. David was the youngest. He was the, the, the smallest. And, okay, Samuel wants to see the sons. He obviously doesn't want to see the young one. We'll just keep him out there with the sheep. Yeah, he's the unimportant one in, in, Jesse, in Jesse's eyes. And Samuel looks at each, child, each one of the boys, and they're big, strapping young men. And God says, no, nope, I've rejected this one. I've rejected this one. He gets to the last one, and he goes, Jesse, do you have any other sins? And he goes, oh, yeah, there's my son David. He's out with the sheep. <laughs> it's like you had to be reminded that he had another son. He had like seven sons, if I recall correctly. He had a bunch of sons. So they bring in David, and God says, this is the one I've chosen. And he anoints him. And it says that he poured a horn of oil over David to anoint him king. A horn of oil was like five to ten gallons of oil. And he pours this horn of oil over this poor little teenage boy. <laughs> you know, prob probably weighed, you know, 120 pounds sopping wet, you know, with the oil on him. And said, you're the next king. And David never presumed to take Saul out from that point. He waited for God to take Saul out. And he's going to wait a long time. He's going to be in the army. He's going to, make, he's going to learn how to handle things. But God exalted him. God chose him. God moved him up the ranks. And he has established him. Nobody could defeat David in battle because God wouldn't let him be defeated. And so these are these verses. It's, it's that promise that God has chosen you. God has chosen you to make you great. He's, he's anointed you. Verse 22, And his enemies shall not exact upon him, nor the son of wickedness afflict him. Exact means collect, uh, collect usury, collect taxes. David would never be in, under the finger of another nation. Now, he put many countries under, 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 under his power, and they gave taxes to him. His, son's going, his first son, Sol Solomon, is going to put the rest of the nations in the area under, under him and exact taxes from them. But on David, during his day, nobody put him under taxation. He was always victorious. Now toward the very end of the kingdom of Judah, they're going to go under the authority of a number of nations because they've rejected God. And that takes us into the second half of this, this psalm. This first half is how David is going to be blessed. And it says in verse 23, I, and I will beat down his foes before his face and plague them that, that hate him. David had no problems. Every time he went to war, he won. He won the battles because God was on his side. When he fought Goliath, God was on his side. When he fought the Philistines, God was on his side. When he fought the Assyrians, God was on his side. He, everywhere he turned, he was victorious. And God said, you're blessed. I've blessed you. Even when he had sinned with Bathsheba, he still, God blessed him even though he didn't deserve it because he never deserved it. It was always because of God's mercy that David was blessed. And because God said, I have chosen you, you're a man after my own heart. David usually would confess his sin and come back to God and say, God, I've sinned against you. He was a little slow in the, in the issue of Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah and others. Do you realize that when he sent Uriah and Uriah's group of people to front gate, it wasn't just Uriah who was killed during that battle. When the rest of the army pulled away, it was Uriah and his men that got massacred at the wall. So David's sin was not just Uriah. Uriah was the one he wanted killed. But the way that it was handled by the general got more than just Uriah killed. Because you read it very closely in, 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 in 2 Samuel and you'll see that it was more than just Uriah. So David's sin with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah cost the lives of many of his valiant soldiers so that he could cover his, you know, try to hide his sin. And, and it held off for over a year confessing his sin. But God finally got hold of him. Was that why David never got to build the temple? Just because of his... Could be that. It could. I also believe that 
that David was the type of man, if, if you read carefully, David was the type of man who enjoyed the battle. Uh, you know, when he killed Goliath, he ran right up to Goliath, cut his head off, you know, took the sword, cut his head off, held it up in victory. There's other places where he slew, you know, dozens and hundreds of men. I think, I think part of it was Uriah and those men, but I also think there was this glory in battle. He was a very, he enjoyed it. It's, it's not just he fought because he had to. And, I, and that's my personal opinion. It could just be because of Uriah. But I think it was much more than that, much more than that, because God, he asked for his sins to be forgiven, and I think God covered his sins under Uriah, but I think it would, I believe it was because he was, you know, you read the way he goes into battle, and he seems to enjoy battle. He likes fighting, he likes killing, and uh, Solomon is going to be given a kingdom that pretty much is established. He doesn't have to do much fighting. Verse 24 says, but my faithfulness and my mercy shall I show him, and my name shall his and by my name shall his horn be exalted. I will set his hand in the sea and his right hand in the river. So here we see a picture of the kingdom of David was from the, the sea, the Mediterranean, and all the way to the Euphrates. He was the one that got Israel all the land that they were supposed to have from the very beginning when Joshua led the people into the promised land. The, when he led them in, they never completed taking the promised land because they just got tired of fighting and got tired of battling and stopped trusting God and started losing battles as they fell more and more into sin. And so they never did, during under Joshua or any of the judges, hold the kingdom the way it was supposed to be. David gets it. He gets it from sea to, to river. And God says he's given it and he gives it to Solomon. And Solomon has this reign that's full. And that's the last time, Solomon was the last time there was ever the full kingdom of Israel until Jesus comes back for the millennial kingdom and rules the world. All right, we slip into a little different thing here. We start looking from the next couple of verses, we start seeing a little picture of Jesus in this psalm. It goes, he shall cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. I will also make him my firstborn higher than the kings of the earth. My mercy will I keep, will I keep for him forevermore, and my covenant shall stand fast with him. His seed also I will make to endure forever in his throne as the days of heaven. So here we're seeing a little picture of Jesus. We're kind of flipping because David... It's very interesting in the Psalms especially, a lot of times they use David and, and Jesus and they flip back and forth quite often because Jesus is considered the son of David because he is a son of David. By a long, through Mary, he is a son of David and so he is, has the right to be king. We've talked about this. He's the last one who has his genealogy written down that can be verified because it would have been verified back in the days when this was written before the, before the, the temple was destroyed and the, Jerusalem was destroyed and the records destroyed. Right now, nobody out there can prove that they're a descendant of David. We see here this, this lineage that David and Jesus share. He's, so we slip in here, it says, he will cry to me, my father and my God and rock of my salvation, he will be my firstborn. I will make him higher than the kings of the earth. This is not David he's speaking of at this point in time. This is clearly, he's switched over to talking about Jesus. The first one, a little questionable, but David, because David used those same terms. It says, my mercy will I keep for him forever, and my covenant shall stand fast with him. His seed also I will make to endure forever, and his throne is the days of heaven. So we see this kind of mixing of David and, and Jesus together in these verses. And then we get into, we're back to David in verse 30. If, and this is an if that God knows is going to happen, if his children forsake my law and walk not in my judgments, if they break my statutes and keep not my commandments, and we know that God knew that was going to happen because it did not take them long before they were breaking God's commandments. Solomon himself started breaking God's commandments. So it wasn't even one generation out before they're being broken. And then all, many of the kings in Judah kept breaking God's commandment. Now they had a few good kings, Josiah, Hezekiah. Uh, you know, they had some really good kings that were honoring God and cleaned up the, 
they, they'd placed, but they also had a lot of bad kings that, that led into, into idolatry. And you think about the, you know, Josiah was a very interesting, he was, he was a, made king at eight years old, being in his hand held by one of the prophet, uh, priests. And they went in and they cleaned the tabernacle of the temple. And it said it took them, if I recall correctly, it took them a month to clean the tab, uh, temple. They had used it for a junkyard. Okay, they, and in the temple, as they were cleaning it out, they found a copy of the law. And then they read the law to the people, and the people tore their clothes and put sackcloth on because they realized all the rules and laws of God that they had been breaking. That's how far down they had gone. We always get this idea, because we're spoiled in America, and we really are. Most of us have more than one Bible in our possession. Some of us have eight or nine Bibles in our possession. Do you realize that it wasn't so long ago you were lucky to have one Bible for the whole family? Okay, was, it wasn't so long ago, just two or 300 years ago, it was, you were lucky to have a Bible for the family. And be able to read. Now, depending on where you lived. In America, the, the Congress printed Bibles for every family in America in, in, the, in the first uh, Continental Congress because they knew how important the morality of Christianity was. They mandated school education or reading, writing, and arithmetic for kids because they wanted kids to be able to read the Word of God. Christian nations have had the highest literacy rate in most nations forever because the purpose is to read God's Word. The Jews have always had a high literacy rate, at least in Hebrew, because they wanted their children to be able to read God's Word. So it is important. When people are people of the Word, they learn to read. And this is one of the reasons that Satan does not want people to learn, because if he can keep people from the Word, he can keep them from knowing. And we saw that. Josiah's people didn't have the Word. And he's not the only one of the kings that found the word of God when they started cleaning out the temple. Moses told them that when you have a king, the king is to write out his own copy of the Pentateuch, the law. They didn't do that like they were supposed to. Why did he want them to write it out? Well, if anybody's ever done any kind of study, and when you write something out, it helps you remember it better. But it also gave you your own personal copy that you could put next to your bed that you t remembered because you wrote it out, but you also had a copy. It was yours. This is important for them. I mean, Jesus and God saying, if you forsake, if you break, then I will visit their transgression with a rod and their iniquity with stripes. In other words, he says, I will punish the ones that disobey, your children, David, that disobey. When, when your children disobey, I will punish. And it sets up the stage for what's coming. It really does. Nevertheless, my loving kindness will I not utterly take from him nor suffer his faithfulness to fail. So he goes, this is your covenant, David. I made a covenant with you that your seed would reign forever. And David's seed reigned Judah all the way till they went into the Babylonian captivity. Even when... The Babylonians put new kings in place. They picked David's seed. And if you know history, that's very unusual to take one king and put the same family back in his place. They usually kill them all. Well, they would kill them all and just change the dynasty. Yeah. In this case, God had made a promise to David, and he fulfilled that promise to David and said, okay, they're going to they're get rid of him, but we're going to put your child in. And then there was no king for five, six hundred years until Jesus came along. The well, king. Jesus talks about saving remnants of his people. Always. Always a remnant. There's always a remnant. And it actually goes back to all the way to Elijah. When Elijah had to battle with the 450 prophets of Baal, and, Jeze and he won that. You know, it was kind of interesting. He wins the battle of the gods, his god against Baal, 
And his first statement once he wins that battle is, okay, people, kill the 400 prophets. He kills the 400 prophets, and Jezebel threatens his life, and he runs away like a total coward over 200 miles. And it indicates in there that he ran straight there. He didn't stop. He was running for his life in fear of Jezebel. And then he gets into this cave, and he's griping to God, I'm the only one left. There's nobody else that follows you, God. And that's when God said, I can't remember the number, but I have several hundred or thousand that haven't bent their knee to Baal. There's always the remnant. You're not alone. Good back up where, go back where I told you to be. And he had to go back the 200 miles, 250 miles that he'd ran. Mm -hmm. We do that ourselves often when we run from God. Jonah, in the boat, running the wrong direction, and, and God sends him back to Nineveh via the great fish. First, submarine, first submariner. Not, not a very pleasant one. Had the, had the seaweed wrap around his head. Can you imagine what he looked like after three, deli, uh, three days in the belly of the fish? The acid that his body would have been exposed to over three days. And he gets... And he gets spit up in Nineveh, and God says, now are you ready to be obedient? I put you right here, go. And he goes and preaches. <laughs> and when the city repents, <laughs> he goes up and sits up on the mountain and gripes to God, you forgave them. Yeah, because they were bad. Well, not only were they bad, they were Israel's enemy. <laughs> he wanted them destroyed. He didn't want them to repent. He wanted the enemy gone. As far as he was concerned, he'd committed treason. He'd gone to the enemy and, the, and gave aid and comfort to the enemy as they went to turn to God. But God does this in several places. Peter denies Jesus and runs away to go back to be a fisherman. And probably went all the way from Jerusalem to Galilee, all the way to Galilee where his boats and stuff were. So he had gone a long ways from God and Jesus meets him and says, okay, get back where you're supposed to be. You're supposed to be back in Jerusalem. This happens to us all the time. We run away from God and God says, what are you doing here? This isn't where I told you to stay. This isn't where I told you to be. And when we start listening, we have to go back. It's very expensive to disobey God because you go someplace and do something you're not supposed to do and then have to go right back where he told you to go. Mm -hmm. If nothing else, it's a cost of time, much less the cost of actual expenses to do things. But here we see God saying, I will not forget my blessing. I promised David, so even though I'm going to put stripes and, and the rod on their back, I will not totally take them out of existence because I made my promise to David. Same thing that before. When God says, I'm going to bless Israel, it's because, not because of anything good they do, because usually Israel has been bad, even in the Old Testament. They were bad in Jesus' day. And for the most part today, they are atheists and, and bad. But God told Abraham, those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. And to this day, Israel, if they're blessed, people get blessed. If they curse them, the people are cursed. Israel itself is the breadbasket of Europe, and it sits amongst all these countries that can't grow anything in their deserts because they curse Israel and God has cursed them. It is very important that we look at this and say, God keeps his promises. We go back even further to Noah. God promised Noah, I will never again flood the whole earth in discipline. That doesn't mean that he's not going to flood parts of the earth or bits and pieces of it. He does that as we're seeing that right now. We're seeing all kinds of places around the world that are in heavy flood right now. But God will never flood the entire world. The next, fire, next destruction is told to us by Peter is by fire. Mm -hmm. And the total destruction of this world and a new heaven and earth created. And I think that fire is literally just God letting go of the atoms and just letting them blow apart into oblivion. Because do you realize that without God holding everything together, nothing exists? It says, by him all things are held together. And if you look at an atom, there is no reason that an atom should exist. 
It's got protons sitting next to each other that should be blowing themselves to the smithereens. It's got electrons around the protons that should be diving into the protons. The very existence of an atom is against the laws of electricity. And yet God says, I hold everything together. And when it says he holds everything together, he literally holds everything together. God is, God is so wonderful, and what he's created is so wonderful, and what he does is so wonderful, and how he holds everything together, how he has a personalized plan for every one of us, how every one of us are so similar and yet so different. A different fingerprint on every hand, a different eye, print, eye retina print, a different voice print, DNA that is different, even though it's similar to, you know, enough to you to know who your parents are, but yet it's different enough that it isn't completely their DNA, even though that's where it came from, because it, their DNA has part of their parents and their parents and the, all the way back. Our DNA has so much difference. Our, everything about us has so much individuality. <coughs> you know, they say that our palm prints are all different. Uh, the, the, the markings on your lips are different from each other. And it's everything, is the, though it is all the same, is still different. And God says, I have a plan for you. I have, you are wonderfully created. And when did he start this plan? Before the creation of the world. Not just what Jeremiah says, in our mother's womb, he knit us together and knew us, but he knew us before he even created everything. He knew what we were going to decide. He knew what we were going to do in our life. And he said, I'm going to create these people anyway. It's going to cost me my son's life. He's going to live with them. He's going to live a perfect life. They're going to crucify him and that's the price we're going to pay. I'm going to have to separate myself from my son for a period of time, but we're willing to pay that price to, to, to uh, pay, bring them and redeem them back. I don't understand it. I've never been able to understand it. I don't know what God sees in us to say that was worth the pain that he went through? I don't know why. <laughs> well, no, nobody knows why. I, I've read brilliant people and nobody can explain why he would do such a thing. All right, verse 34. My covenant will I not break, nor alter the thing that is gone from my lips. Once I have spoken by my holiness, and I will not lie unto David. His seed shall endure forever, and his throne as the sun before me. It shall be established forever as the moon and as a faithful witness in heaven, Selah. When God gives a promise, it is steadfast and sure. Written in stone. Written in stone, he's not going to change it. This is why when he says, anyone who comes to Christ, believing in Christ, believing their sin, they will be saved. And once they are saved, they are saved because God's grace, mercy, promise is that they're going to be saved. God commended his love toward us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. John 3.16, for God so loved the world. Who's the world? Everybody. That he gave his only begotten son the price that whosoever believes on him shall have everlasting life. Now that believe is the key word in that, in that statement. It is not just, I believe that Jesus lived. It is not, I just believe that Jesus died. And it doesn't even include, I just believe that Jesus rose again. Though if you get that far to believe that he rose again, you're probably on the right track with the right belief. Okay, because we can show you that Jesus lived. Okay, there's plenty outside of the Bible to prove that he lived. And more and more as time goes on. They're finding Roman papers that are taught, you know, Roman reports that come from Pilate and others in the area talking about this itinerant rabbi, Jesus. They talk about this rabbi who was, who was killed that they really didn't think was guilty, but God, but they pacified the Jews. And then there's also the statements that there's rumors that he rose from the dead. We're, you know, we're, we're checking him out and all this. We're not going to be crazy enough to, to say that he rose again, but that's what the rumor is. Okay. 
No. They resurrected once. He only got killed once. He only got killed once. He only had to rise again once. So he rose from the dead, and he showed himself to the, to the disciples for 40 days and others. And this is where Paul said, you know, when Paul's defending him to the Corinthians and going, you know, he gives them, he rose from the dead, I, I saw him was out of time, Paul saw him, John saw him, Peter saw him. And besides us, 500 other people saw him, most of whom are still alive. So what was he saying? If you don't believe us because you think we have an ax to grind, go to Jerusalem and talk to the 500 people that saw him. Okay, and you don't say that to a people at, the t at that time who could actually go and verify it because you know if you're talking to hundreds or thousands of people, at least one of them is going to go talk, go investigate what you just said. <laughs> at least one, if not more. Got up out of Corinth and went to Jerusalem to go talk to and the Galilee area to see, okay, who are these other 500 people that, that saw him? An empty tomb. Now, there's a lot of people who will try to say, well, the... The, uh, the, the disciples went to the wrong tomb. Well, Pilate and the Jewish leaders went to the tomb and marked it with their own rings. So if they went to the wrong tomb and said, see, the tomb is empty, they would have just come and said, what kind of dumb people are you? It's over here. This is the tomb we marked. Yeah. So the idea that being an empty tomb does not hold water. The idea that he didn't die does not hold water because even if he had been badly injured, he didn't get up in three days later, walk on feet that had nails stuck through them, with his, bro with his battered ribs, wrists, and move a several hundred pound to a ton stone out of the way and walk away from the tomb. Okay, wouldn't have happened. So what did they decide to do? They decided to, to spread the story, the disciples stole the body. And you know, I've always loved the testimony that the, that the guard gave. While we were sleeping, <laughs> the disciples came to, to steal the body. Well, there's two very big problems with that testimony. They couldn't move the rock. Number one problem with that story is the guard, a, a military guard, would not sleep when you're on guard duty. Because if you admitted to sleeping or got caught sleeping, in a time of war, which the Roman were at war, it was a death sentence. Now, of course, the second problem is, how much do you know about anything while you're sleeping? You know, if your house is robbed while you are sleeping, you cannot tell the police the next morning, I know who came into my house and stole, while, stole cleaned my house out while I was sleeping. Mm -hmm. Because you don't know anything when you're sleeping. You go to bed, you fall asleep, and the next thing you know, it's time to get up. And it seems like no time has gone by. So their testimony is a false testimony. Number one, they wouldn't have been sleeping. Number two, while they were sleeping, they couldn't testify to anything about while they were sleeping. So all of, their, all of these evidences are the lies that are out there. And Jesus showed himself to over 500 people. That's a lot of people. Can you imagine if you had a court case and you wanted to present 500 plus witnesses? You know, the court would say, I don't think we need that many. <laughs> you know, I, we don't need to hear from all 500 witnesses unless they're going to say something different. Think about this. If each witness only took five minutes to give a testimony, that's still 2,500 minutes worth of testimony. Mm -hmm. That's a lot of testimony. God was very protective of David and said, your son will rule. And Jesus was that last son, and Jesus will rule for the rest of eternity, sitting on David's throne as David's child who runs the world and the new heaven and earth. He is the one that will be able to do it because he is the son of David. And it is established forever as the moon and the faithful witness in heaven. Verse 38, but you have cast off and abhorred 
You have been wroth with your anointed. You have made void the covenant of your servant. You have profaned the crown by casting it to the ground. You have broken down all of his hedges. You have brought his strongholds to ruin. All that pass by the way spoil him. He is a reproach to his neighbors. You have set up the right hand of his adversaries. You have made all his enemies rejoice. This is David's children who disobeyed him. And they eventually go into captivity. But first, God puts them, as always, puts them under the hand of another nation. And if they had repented, if they had chosen to repent, God would have delivered them. But they wouldn't. How often do we live a life in our life and we don't repent? We're doing wrong things and we don't repent. And then we gripe to God about all the bad things that are happening to us. God, it's all your fault. And God's saying, it's not my fault. If you would just do what I told you to do, if you would just repent, I would give you mercy and grace. And we gripe to God. God, this, that, and the other thing's happening in my life. It's going to be bad enough because Job had all that thing happening and he was innocent. And he still had bad things happening. But here they're blaming God because of what the kings are doing. The, the, the kings have rejected God and God is saying here's the punishment I'm letting punishment and they're griping about it saying God you, you know you God you haven't you haven't kept your promise and God's saying yes I have I told you if you didn't obey that I would lay stripes on you I'd put the rod on you I'm doing exactly what I told you but I'm not taking your life I'm not taking your life O king of David's seed. <laughs> You've got another son to take over, but I'm not taking your life. I'm going to be, he's going to have seed. He's going to have the remnant, but you're not going to keep your kingdom. And so we see this whole lament, this whole griping. Verse 33, 43, you have turned also the edge of his sword. You have not, you have not made him to stand in battle. You have made his glory to cease and cast his throne down. Again, they started losing battles. When they would not honor God, they did not follow God, they did not get the blessing of David and of victory. He said, okay, your sword's not going to help you. You're going to lose battles. Other times they would win battles because God delivered them. And we read all through Kings and Chronicles, we read sometimes when a good king would win and then a bad king would lose. A good king, the good kings would win and the bad kings would lose because God was keeping his promise to David. If your children serve me, I will bless them. If they are disobedient, they will feel the stripes upon their back. They will be, dis they will be disciplined. Verse 45, for the days of his youth have been shortened, and you have covered him with shame. Then 46, how long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? Shall your wrath burn like fire? Remember how short my time is. Therefore, have you made all men in vain? What is man that lives that he shall not see death? Shall he, shall he deliver his soul from the hand of the grave? Here's the griping. God, our lives are short and you're making them miserable. And then he's going, you know, how long, God, are you going to be angry with us? Well, until you repent. <laughs> the answer is pretty simple, even though the, it's, it's the lament here. And we see this over and over. How long, God, are you going to be mad at us? And I can almost hear God every time until you humble yourself and repent and seek after my face. If you seek after my face, I will deliver you. I will restore. I will give you back your throne. I will give you back your authority. But when they don't bow their knees in humility, God will not restore them. Same thing in our life. If we battle God and we say, God, I am not going to repent. I am not going to humble myself. We will see God's hand turn against us especially as his children. If the world turns against them, they're not his children. He's going to let them turn away from him. They're not his children. But we, as his children, if we turn our back away from him and refuse to repent, he's going to say, okay, let you feel some stripes. Let you feel some punishment. If you will repent, if you will confess with your mouth your sin, I will forgive. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess with our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of all unrighteousness. He just expects us to humble ourselves and confess. And what is confession? We've covered this. It is saying the same thing as 
God says it's sin, we need to say, God, I have sinned. Well, we did that in church. A lot of people will say, though, God, I made a mistake. That's not saying the same thing that God says about sin. God wants us to say, you ha I have sinned. If you just say, God, I made a mistake, and this is why, we haven't confessed. We haven't, we haven't addressed what the issue is. We are saying, well, God, it wasn't, wasn't that big a deal. God looks at sin as a very big deal. Jesus paid the price for sin. It cost a lot for our sin to be forgiven. And when we just come to God and go, well, God, it was just a little mistake. It was just a little problem. God's going, no, you need to confess. You need to admit that you all have sin. And when we admit that we've sinned and we confess that it is a sin, God says, oh, right, thank you. And he's the prodigal father running to the son saying, and, you know, or daughter saying, welcome back home. You, you know, I'm going to go have a feast for you. We're going to have a party because you're back where you belong. That was his promise to David. Your, your seed will always sit on the throne. Always. And God brought that to fulfillment with Jesus. Verse 49, Lord, where are your former loving kindness, which you swear unto David in your truth? And note that, in your truth. This Ethan knows, God, you've promised, you've promised David, and you are true. He's kind of forgetting the steps in between the promise and the obedience and the, and the humility. Remember, Lord, in the reproach of your servants. How do I bear in my bosom the reproach of all the mighty people? Wherewith your enemies have reproached, O Lord, wherewith have they reproached the footsteps of your anointed? Ethan never does come to the conclusion. David usually, if you remember, in most of David's psalms, he gets, starts out angry, sad, depressed, and comes full circle to, God, I come to you. You are, you are God. You are the one that re re forgives. You are the one that redeems. Nathan, Ethan doesn't come to this conclusion. He's going, God, you know, you're forgetting us. But then he goes, blessed be the Lord forevermore. Amen and amen. Or truly, truly, let it be so, let it be so. He understands that God has made a promise. Mm -hmm. He doesn't necessarily fully see and understand how to get back to that promise because he's seeing a country and a nation that's being pretty much destroyed at the time he's talking. And he is in not willing to come to full circle. David usually comes full circle. We have finished book three of the Psalms, and we will be ready to start book four of Psalms next week. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity we have to come before you and that you love us so much. Lord, that if we repent, that you bring us back as children, that beloved children, that you give us the grace and mercy that you've promised, and you uphold us, you lift us up, and you build us up into that into your covering. And we just thank you for all of that. And we just love you so much and ask you to bless us. In Jesus' name, amen.